Welcome to the Birthful Podcast. I'm Adriana Lozada, and today we're talking about your baby's calming reflex. It's sadly not uncommon for babies to cry unconsolably for long periods of times, and we usually attribute it to colic or the so-called witching hour. But what if there were a proven set of steps you could follow to calm your baby instantly and consistently? Dr. Harvey Karp tells us more. Stay tuned. This episode of Birthful is brought to you by Expectful, an evidence-based guided meditation app created specifically for those trying to conceive pregnant or new moms. Learn more and sign up for a free two-week trial at expectful.com birthful. This episode of Birthful is also brought to you by RX Bar Kids, a clean label snack bar made with high quality real ingredients designed specifically for kids. Learn more at rxbar.com birthful. The Birthful Podcast, talking to maternity pros to inform your intuition. Hello, mighty parents and parents-to-be. Thanks so much for listening and for all your messages. If what you hear is helpful, please do take a few minutes to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or on Facebook or on Google, like what Samantha posted recently saying that the podcast has, quote, so much information, love it, even got my husband hooked. I started listening after it was recommended by a friend at about 14 weeks of my pregnancy, and I was all caught up by week 34. Thanks, Samantha. Thank you for sending that message. And I'm so glad you're all caught up and that you got your husband hooked. And also thank you to your friend for recommending it. And so also, if you like what you hear, tell your friends about it. (laughs) All right. Today, I'm going to be talking to the remarkable Dr. Harvey Karp about the calming reflex and the five S's he identified to help calm babies, along with a new product that he's developed to take those five S's and tie them together with many of the American Academy of Pediatrics sleep guidelines to help both newborns and new parents get more sleep in the early days, which is huge, right? We all need more sleep. Um, And sleeping with a newborn is tough. So all the help helps. Now, this product has been quite polarizing for some, and I really appreciated getting to talk with Dr. Karp directly about it. Before we start, though, just a quick heads up that at the beginning of the recording, Dr. Karp's signal, the call signal kept coming in and out. So we stopped the call and then tried again. And that's going to explain why somewhere around after we'd been talking for about eight minutes, the background sounds changed drastically. And that's because Dr. Karp moved locations. So it's different ambient noise. (laughs) That's what's happening. Um, And I promise the recording gets much, but the sound quality gets much better after that. All right, here we go. Dr. Karp, so happy and excited to have you here on the show today. Thank you for this. Oh, my God. Thank you, Adrienne. It's really a pleasure talking with you. So wonderful. So, you know, I'm sure that most, if not all, of the listeners out there are familiar with your name and the happiest baby on the block. But would you tell us a little bit more about your work and how you discovered the calming reflex? Sure. My pleasure. So um, I practiced pediatrics for almost 30 years. And my training before that, besides being a pediatrician, was as a child developmentalist. And um, and during that during that time when I was studying at UCLA, I also worked on the child abuse team and I worked in the emergency room at nights. And I would see babies who were brought in by their parents because they were screaming and screaming. And, you know, these parents were convinced this baby had a 
appendicitis or something terrible. And um, and sometimes I would even see babies brought in because, who cried so much that their parents sh shook them and injured them or even killed them. I also worked on the child abuse team and saw those situations. And then in my studies, I learned about a tribe in, in Africa who had been studied by anthropologists. They could calm their crying babies in under a minute, 95% of the time. And when I learned about those those parents, I realized that what we were teaching in our culture, that some babies would cry an hour or two or three hours a day, and that was just normal, couldn't possibly be correct. Or or else those babies in Africa were mutant babies. They were different from our babies. Right. So, um, so I really started being interested in why do babies cry? How can we calm them? How could he help them sleep? And then basically spent... Um, you know, 20 years practicing different ideas in my practice with my own patients um, to really get confident in what I knew, which was that um, the interesting thing about babies in a certain sense is they're born three months before they're ready for the world. We call that concept the fourth trimester, that they really need three more months of holding and rocking and kind of you being a uterus, a big walking uterus, you know, after the baby's been born. Um, and... Um, by imitating the baby's experience in the womb, you can calm them. Well, everyone knows that, right? You rock a baby, you shush a baby, you hold a baby. That's that's not news. But how does it work? Why? Does a baby, like, get nostalgic for the womb? Oh, yeah, I used to live in a place like that. Yeah, I love this. No, babies are, are really built upon preset kind of neurological inputs, what we call reflexes. So sucking is a built-in reflex. Swallowing is a built-in reflex. Crying is a built-in reflex. But it turns out that calming is also a built-in reflex. And to activate this calming reflex, to turn it on, imitate the baby's experience in the womb, but you have to do it in some very specific ways. And if you don't do them correctly, they just don't work. And so, um, and so what I kind of organized was this concept of the five S's, which are swaddling, the side stomach side or stomach position, shushing, swinging, and sucking as the five cardinal techniques that we use to imitate the womb and activate a baby's calming reflex to reduce crying, even colicky crying in most cases, and to help improve a baby's sleep. And every parent who's listening to the, this or, need, or expecting parent just took a sigh of relief of figuring out that, oh, there's <laughs> a calming reflex that we can just tap into. Um, and because we were talking a little bit about this before we started recording, that we live in these modern times where we don't, like most people that become parents don't quite have had any experience with baby care or how to calm a baby. So... I yeah. Yeah. And you see that as a doula, of course, I see that as a pediatrician. And what I like parents to recognize is that it's not a problem if you haven't had a lot of baby experience because it's not rocket science, right? I mean, there are a few techniques. Once you learn it, you become so good at it that you're stopping other parents you see in the park and you're teaching them. Because when you have a two month old baby, you're suddenly the expert for everyone who has a younger baby. Um, however, I do think it's important for parents to understand that up until 100 years ago, every new parent had taken care of 5, 10, 20 babies before they had their own. And so what I like parents today to understand is what they're doing is an enormous experiment that was never done before. Like even having two parents take care of a young child 
That was never done before. You always had the extended family. The joke is today, if you have a if you have a nanny or a night nurse, you know you're pretty well off. I mean, you're not everyone things, but up until a hundred years ago, everyone had five nannies: your grandmother, your aunt, your older sister, your next door neighbor's older daughter. So parents today need to pat themselves on the back and recognize that they're doing something that no parents did before in the history of humanity. And that's why it's it's hard and it's time consuming and it's exhausting because you're doing something that five people used to do before. Oh, absolutely. And I always tell the parents, you know, to think that this this idea of the super mom or the super dad, that that's a trap, that they need to ask mm-hmm. for help and they need to figure out that understand this dissonance between what we're asking parents and ourselves to do right now with what we used to do 100 years ago. Um, but before we exactly. get deeper into that, would you mind breaking down what the calming reflects like those you're, you're known for the five S's. So what those five S's are? You bet. So the idea is you're imitating the experience in the womb. So in the womb, what are the sensations babies have? And this is kind of like a an aha, an epiphany moment for, for parents, because it's not quiet and still in there. It's a symphony of sensations. The sound than a vacuum cleaner, this rumbly sound of the blood whooshing through the arteries, um, constantly held very, very tightly. So babies don't need freedom, security. They need to be enveloped. And, um, and there's lots of motion during the day in an exercise class or things like that. There's lots of jiggly motion. But even when you're sleeping, you're, and with every breath, you, your diaphragm is moving the baby up and down. So it turns out that these several different um, types of sensations, of rhythmic sensations, are what babies need to be comforted. And if you do that right, they literally flip a switch. So, for example, shushing is sweet and calm for any baby. You have a sleeping baby in your arms, and you'll go, and in fact, all of us are calmed by these ancient rhythms, the sound of the wind, the sound of the ocean. Um, We fall asleep in trains and planes. Those rhythms are deeply and profoundly calming, even for adults. But in the first four months or five months of life, they're almost irresistible. But the interesting thing about a reflex is there's a certain prescribed way that you have to do it. And if you're not doing it exactly right, it's totally not going to work. So like I said, with reflex you have to hit the knee place and you have to hit it hard enough and when you do that you can get a knee reflex a thousand times in a row well with the calming reflex there are these five steps so it's swaddling but you have to wrap them with their arms down not their arms up and it has to be very snug if the baby can wiggle their arms out swaddling makes the baby cry more not less and we can talk more about safe swaddling and what that means the side stomach position you never use for sleeping. The best position for sleeping. It's the worst position for crying baby. And that's when the call got so bad that I asked Dr. Carp to stop and, and try to figure out what we could do about it. What he had just said is that the back is the safest position for sleeping, but that it's the worst position for calming a crying baby. All right. Here's the rest of the call with much better sound quality although more noise in the background. So shushing is the next S, and the sound inside of the womb is actually louder than a vacuum cleaner 24-7. It's the sound of blood wishing through the arteries. And 
what happens is that that sound is constant. So you can imagine how odd it is when a baby is in total quiet. That's really fine for us for sleeping, but very odd for, for babies. Um, and, um, and as I said, even adults like the sound of the wind and the ocean, that can be very comforting for us. Uh, the fourth S is swinging or rhythmic motion. Um, and so you can imagine a baby's experience in the womb when you're in an exercise class or going up and down the stairs or even just walking. And even when you're sleeping, the diaphragm moves up and down. And so even while you're sleeping, your baby is constantly rocked. They're never in a totally flat, unmoving position. And then the fifth S is sucking, which is kind of icing on the cake. Once you settle your baby, the sucking makes them profoundly calm. Mm-hmm. You you did mention these in an order, and I know you always start with swaddling. Do you find yeah. that maybe like all babies, do you need all five to get to the reflex, or it really depends on the baby's temperament? Yeah, it's interesting. It's not so much temperament, but just babies do have, I mean, they're very similar, um, but there are subtle differences from one baby to the next. Some of them are more bouncy babies. Some of them are more babies who prefer sucking or babies who are so quickly calmed by sound, but swaddling becomes an important um, kind of um, starting point because, and actually the swaddling doesn't even calm them down. That doesn't so much turn the calming reflex on as it does prepare the baby for the next things that you'll do. Because if they're not swaddled, their arms are, um, you know, flailing around and windmilling and they're upsetting themselves even more. And so once they're swaddled with the arms down, they can pay attention to the next things that you're going to do in terms of the, those upper S's. Mm, so the swaddling is more like preventive of, I'm going to work on these things, let's not make it worse. Just bring those Exactly. And, yeah. then, and then once you calm the child, the swaddling keeps them calmer mm-hmm. and helps them sleep longer. So swaddling becomes really a cornerstone of everything else. But one of the fun parts about being a new parent is you discover what mixture of these S's works for your baby. And once you discover that, that's that's what will always work. So if you find that strong shushing in your child's ear when you're bouncing them is the is the secret formula for your child, then that's really going to be your go-to, you know, whenever your child gets fussing yeah, during and, those four months. And I appreciate that, like, you know, I've heard other interviews with you, and you mentioned how the book is great, but actually the video is what people need to watch because you wouldn't imagine how hard you have to, or loud you have to shush and what the tone is. And um, I did. It's true. Yeah, yeah. yeah my, my publisher always gets angry at me. It's a very good book. It's an interesting book, but to really learn the techniques, it's very visual. Kind of like learning how to tie your shoelaces. You'll learn it better by watching how to bounce the baby, how to support the head, how to swaddle properly. You know, just the swaddling by itself, there are more ways to do it wrong than to do it right. And if you don't swaddle correctly, they get unraveled, it makes them cry more, it becomes, a, they've got loose blankets around their faces, it becomes, and parents really lose confidence about swaddling. That's probably the biggest thing I hear. My baby doesn't like to be swaddled. Well, you know what? Baby, little babies don't get a vote, to be honest with you. With rights come responsibilities, and they don't have the responsibilities yet to keep from whacking themselves in the faces or, or startling themselves. 
and waking themselves up. So that's why people in cultures around the world have swaddled babies. And they don't even know those arms are theirs. They don't even know they're at an eye. And they've got this like other, this other reflex, the startle reflex, which works against the calming reflex. It's exactly right. Exactly right. So it's complicated. Um, You mentioned, let's talk a little bit about safe swaddling because you mentioned that that can be an issue. What what makes a, a swaddling safe? So, um, so there are a couple of things. One is you don't want the hips too tight. The other is you don't want the baby overheated. Of course, you don't want loose blankets around the baby's face. And actually, the Academy of Pediatrics has just come out with a new recommendation stating that babies should not be swaddled after two months of age. And the reason that they said that is because they don't want babies rolling over and getting on the stomach position swaddle because they can have a greater risk of infant sleep death in that position when they're swaddled. This becomes really problematic for new parents because if you stop swaddling at two months, your baby cries more, wakes up more, um, sleeps less, and oftentimes parents are tempted to bring the baby in bed with them intentionally or accidentally. They fall asleep with the baby. And unfortunately, that can be associated with even more infant sleep deaths, about 70 percent of the 4,000 deaths that occur in the United States every year of babies under one year of age occur in bed with their parents. So it's a very frightening area for for pediatricians. So it's actually because of this that we've created um, a new type of swaddle blanket called Sleepy, which is a swaddle blanket that prevents overheating and, and keeps the hips safe. And we've invented yet something else new called Snoo which is a new type of a baby bed where our swaddle attaches to the bed. So once you swaddle the baby, they can't roll to an unsafe position. So you get all the benefits of swaddling, which is reduced crying and increased sleep without any of the concerns about the baby rolling to an unsafe position. Mm, and I'm re- like, you just mentioned so many things right now that I want to unpack. But before okay. we do, because there's so much in there. Um, before we do that, though, let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. Resetting your nervous system and mindfully bringing yourself back to calm a few times through your day can have a positive impact during your life. And it also helps you get a better night's sleep. Developing a meditation practice can be a super simple and incredibly beneficial way to shift your lifestyle habits, but figuring out where to start can be a little daunting. You can't just go and swaddle yourself, right? (laughs) At least not the same way that Dr. Karp's talking about. Let Expectful help you with that. The Expectful app is one of my favorite resources to help pregnant and new moms find their calm. I really like that it's designed to fulfill your pregnant or new parent needs by focusing on whatever you want help with at any particular moment, whether it's better sleep, connection with baby and partner, embracing your identity, lessening stress, dealing with uncertainty, Expectful makes it super easy for you. If you have five minutes, you have time to meditate. Go to expectful.com slash birthful to sign up for their free two-week trial and check it out for yourself. Don't forget to add the slash birthful part so they know who sent you. So expectful.com slash birthful. And we're back talking with Dr. Harvey Karp about baby's calming reflex and other sleep habits of babies. And so, you know, you mentioned about the safe swaddling and how the uh, Academy of Pediatrics is not recommending swaddling after two months and that how that can be difficult. Um, 
Also, there is your new bed, the snoo that you've created. I'm really excited about it because there's so many things I love. I think it, you guys did a really great job in bringing together many of these recommendations and supporting the recommendations for safe sleep that the both ACOG and the American Academy of Pediatrics um, recommend. Thank you. Yeah, like, you know, sleeping on the back or... Yeah. or making sure that um, babies don't have anything that can suffocate them or tangle them, um, anything sleeping with them, and also having like a firm surface. So all of these things really help with that aspect. Um, But I also find that, you know, in the new recommendations from the Academy, that they did recognize that a lot of parents end up bringing their babies into bed because or follow some sort of unsafe sleep guides. And I think that ties back to these modern lives that we live, right? Mm-hmm. That we mm-hmm. we don't quite, the modern lives that we have don't quite support what developmentally our mammalian realities <laughs> would have apes. us do, like as descendants of apes in that sense and, and being carrier mammals so can we talk a little bit about that in terms of the say sleep guides and, and and more how the bed works to support those things sure sure well let's, let's just back up for a tiny second in the when i was a young pediatrician in the 1980s and 90s i was taught babies should only sleep on their stomach because if they slept on their back they might they might spit up and choke on their vomit um, and then in the 1990s, we discovered that babies who sleep on their stomachs have a higher risk of infant sleep death. So suddenly we did an about face, literally and figuratively, and said babies should only sleep on the back. And what happened was we saw an immediate um, drop in the death rate. It went down from about 6,000 to about 4,000 over the course of five years. It was phenomenal. One of the biggest advances in public health that we'd ever seen. Since the year 2000 to now, you might say, well, how much more has it gone down if it went down so quickly in five years? And it turns out the death rate in the United States has not budged over the last 20 years. We still have almost 4,000 babies dying every year. And the reason for that is because babies don't like to sleep on their backs in a still bed in a quiet room. When we put them on their backs, they wake up more, they cry more, and that tempts mothers to bring their babies into bed with them and that's where new dangers come up. And so today, 70% of the infant sleep deaths occur in bed or on a sofa or in some unsafe place because these parents are either exhausted. Most of the time it happens because you're just exhausted. You're just trying to get your child to sleep more. For some parents, a philosophical issue. They feel that it's more natural or supportive of breastfeeding to have the baby in bed with them. Um, and I certainly understand that position, but I would strongly, strongly recommend that they have the baby next to the bed, not in the bed with them. And they can that can support the breastfeeding relationship too. And the reason for this is because you would never bed share if you were drunk. Well, it turns out when you're tired, you're the equivalent of drunk. That's why there is many car accidents caused by exhausted drivers as drunk drivers. So it's important for loving parents to understand that we can support breastfeeding, having the baby right next to the bed without bringing the baby into the bed and introducing that new risk. Yeah, and I think it's important to understand that most of these recommendations to lessen SIDS, what they're looking for at the core is, and, and, and 
correct me if I'm wrong in my understanding, but at the core, they're all things that help babies wake up more easily because usually what happens with SIDS is that, they, you know, ba like you said, babies are born in this sort of fourth trimester that they would love to be still in a utero. Um, their lungs might not be so developed or so mature, their system, respiratory systems, and having them wake often is sort of nature's way of making sure they don't go so deep into sleep that then they have a, a, a situation that they can't get out of. Um, so like putting them on their backs, that this somewhere they don't really like to sleep, well, but it wakes them up more often. Or Well, <laughs> well here's the thing. So it's, it gets a little complicated, but mm -hmm. it's really the difference between arousals and arousability. Those are the terms that doctors use. So arousals means how many times does your baby wake up at night? Arousability is how deeply is your baby in sleep or how easy is it to wake your baby up? What you want is a baby who doesn't wake up a lot, but a baby who's very arousable. You want that to be easy to wake them up, but you don't want them waking up and crying all night every two hours because you're going to be exhausted and you can't be the mom you want to be during the day. And so what's interesting about this is it turns out that babies who get stimulation during the night, sound, motion, and swaddling, because every time they breathe, they're getting their body touched by this soft cloth. Those are stimulating to babies. They keep them more arousable, even at the same time as they're improving the baby's sleep. So you can have arousability with reduced waking up or reduced arousals, and that's really the ultimate goal that we're looking for. And that was ties in beautifully into a question I had for you, because one of the things that I was like, a bit concerned about the snow was thinking, well, I know that in terms of supporting breastfeeding, babies need to eat like so many times in a 24 mm -hmm. hours. They need to eat, have this volume of milk come in um, mm -hmm. to keep their weight. And, and that often means that they need to wake up during the day. And I see that in newborn It newborns when I do my postpartum visits that you have a lot of babies who immediately they get the nut on the breast and fall asleep like they, like they fall asleep so easy they're very sleepy babies so my mm -hmm. question was would this motion of the snow when they're trying to like make a little sound to wake up in that in that light sleep after they've come up you know through their sleep cycle would that if there are babies that are easily Uh, rock to sleep again would they then end up missing some feedings or would that affect um, their their needs in, in some way yeah it's a great question so we tested one of the main things we tested for in hundreds of babies before we brought this to the market was to make sure that it wouldn't put babies asleep who needed to be eating who were hungry and so what we find is that if the baby is very slightly hungry Yes, yeah, sometimes you can rock them back to sleep. Just like if the baby's in your arms and is a little hungry, you can rock them to sleep if you're not ready to feed them at that moment. But if a baby has got moderate or more hunger, this will not put the baby back to sleep. And so what the goal is, is to attend to all of your baby's tiny feeding cues all day long. Get all those feedings in every hour or two during the day. But then at nighttime, if you can, not, if you don't have to wake up for every tiny feeding cue and you can help your baby, this is not a magic bed, they're not going to sleep eight hours, but they might give you a four hour stretch and then do a feeding and then get a two or three hour stretch. And then all day long, you're giving them those frequent feedings. That is something that is very, very um, normal for a breastfed baby. 
and it's conducive with good growth as well as with helping the mother get a little more sleep. Because you know what? If moms get more sleep, that also improves their their um, ability to make breast milk. It reduces their risk of mastitis and things like that. Oh, definitely. And I'm a big proponent of, of self-care for moms that they need to try to figure out how to balance out this situation that is so hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> New Being the mom of a newborn is so, so hard. Um, but you know what? I want to say something else, if I, if I might, yeah. about what does a caring mother do? Because with, with Snoo... One of the concerns, I'll tell you two concerns that people have, or two questions that we get a lot, um, or three, actually. One, one is, um, I should be there responding to my baby at all times. I shouldn't have a machine doing my mothering. And, um, and while one can understand that position, actually, we use machines all the time to help us. And the reason you need some help when you're a new mom is because you're not supposed to do it on your own. Like we said in the beginning, you're supposed to have all these helpers. So if you use a swing or you use a rock and play, that's not being a bad mother. That's just using some tools. If you hire a teenager to come in and babysit your baby for an hour a day while you're feeding your three-year-old and cleaning the house or doing your other chores, that's not being a bad mother. And same thing, using a snoo to help when you need to you know, fix a meal or get a, get a nap and you have some assistance in holding your baby and rocking your baby, that's not being a bad mother either. So... Um, we, we have to recognize the fact that they're, they're, that parents have a harder job today than ever before without having that extended family. So we have to look for ways that, um, that help to support mothers while meeting the baby's needs, mothers and fathers, I should say. Yeah, and I wanted to talk a little bit about that because I totally appreciate us being able to use technology and figuring out what's working and not working. And in the case of like the swing or having to drive the car around to get baby to sleep uh, because that's the only way you're creating motion. And also knowing that in that sense, the snoo is an improvement because baby is flat on their back instead of being in this sort of sitting up position that is actually not recommended. So for all parents who are doing rock and plays or, or car naps or that kind of like having their baby sleep in the car seat, they really shouldn't be doing that. Like that is a risky situation. Um, at the same time, though, if we have, like we used to have, all these caregivers, so the grandma, the the babysitter, the sister, come and also hold baby, you know, they're not the same as the swing because you also have like the benefits of skin to skin and having that interaction with a person. Of course. Yeah. So that's much preferable. If you can do that, if you have that type of human support, that's by far and away the best thing. If you don't have it, then better than you being so exhausted, you're driving into walls or getting sick or not meeting your baby's needs Having some help meeting the baby's needs is the next best thing. Actually, it's kind of interesting because this this um, bed, for right, ultimately we hope that this will be a rental bed. People can rent it like a breast pump. But right now it's about, you know, a $1,000 baby bed, which is a lot for a baby bed. And um, and it's a newborn bed. because And it's just for the first six months of life. That's right. right. It's not for long periods. So people go, why are you having, it's like only for rich people or just people in New York City and L.A. or something like that. What's been so interesting for me, number one, is that parents are using this bed from Mississippi to Maine to Alaska, teachers, truckers, because everyone is struggling with this task of taking care of their babies and getting the sleep they need. And so what I tell people is that this is not a baby bed. I mean, yes, 
it is a bed and a white noise machine and a safe swing and an extra hour or two of sleep and safety because when you put the baby in the bed, you attach them. So you don't have to worry anymore about the baby rolling to an unsafe position. It allows you to get the benefits of swaddling without the risks of swaddling. But what this bed, what this, this snoo really is, is your own kind of your older sister who's coming to move in with you or your grandmother. This is really a helper. This is 24 hours a day, seven days a week for the first six months. Whenever you need to put the baby down to take a nap or to, um, to take a shower or to take care of your toddler, you have a helper there to, to be there to rock and, and keep the baby safe and calm. And that turns out to be about $5 a day if you look at it over the first six months. And what's funny is people are spending that on Red Bull or coffee just as they wake with their babies. And for the same investment, you can have the safest, most effective baby bed. Right. Well, and, and you know, like, obviously, there's so many things we should do, like take get to bed early ourselves and have better routines for ourselves. And, you know, like, mm -hmm. <laughs> there's so much that goes into these, these modern lives we live in. But um, we're going to take another quick break. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about if the bed can be over, you know, overused, what people need to watch out for, and your thoughts about this in conjunction to flathead syndrome. We'll be right back. We've been talking about some of the very real struggles of life with a newborn, but if you have older kids, then you probably are very familiar with another struggle, which is the one of trying to find a snack that is healthy and nutritious and that your kids like. Usually, you get one or the other, and frankly, I'm really tired of arguing with my daughter about her snack choices, but I also know that if I even had time to make some homemade almond butter date snack balls recipe, she would not touch them. That's why I was really excited to check out the RX Bar Kids. We received a box with an assortment of their three flavors, which are Berry Blast, Chocolate Chip, and Apple Cinnamon Raisin. And this happened to coincide with the week where Annika was homesick. She didn't want to eat anything. And so I suggested that she have, that she try one of these RX Bars for kids. I also left the box of bars on the counter, just in case. And as the days went by, these bars disappeared. At one point, I walked into the kitchen as she was halfway through a bar and she said, Mom, you really need to get more of these. I love them. And you know that that's not something kids are just going to say unless it's true. So she likes them. And I like that RX Bar Kids are made with high quality real ingredients using egg whites, fruit and nuts as their base. Each bar, each RX Bar Kids has seven grams of protein. Absolutely zero added sugar and no gluten, soy, or dairy. They are delicious, they're clean and convenient, and the perfect thing as an after-school snack or to take on a hike or to eat after sports or gym practice or to just have as an emergency stash in your glove compartment. I also asked Annika what flavors she liked the best. She said the Berry Blast chocolate chip. That's not one, right? <laughs> That's two. Um... After she finished the RX Bar Kids box, by the way, she then started to polish off my adult box. So I am definitely going to have to get more of these this week. You can find RX Bars at Target stores or for 25% off your first order, visit rxbar.com slash birthful and enter the promo code birthful at checkout. So that's the letter R, the letter X. BAR.com slash birthful. So rxbar.com slash birthful and then use the promo code birthful on checkout. 
And we're back uh, talking to Dr. Harvey Karp. And so, Dr. Karp, can the snow be overused? And how does that relate to flathead syndrome that we're seeing really on the rise since the recommendations of having babies back to sleep? Sure. So snoo is meant to be used for all naps and all nights. Um, and it can't be overused because the baby won't allow it to be overused. Snoo will only rock babies when they're calm and asleep. It actually rocks them faster and shushes louder to settle them when they cry. So it is a, a little bit, um, it, it's responsive in that way and oftentimes can calm the baby down if the baby's not hungry or uncomfortable. But the bed will stop after a couple of minutes if the baby continues crying um, because that's clearly a sign the baby needs you. So this is not like a neglectomatic. You can't ignore your baby's needs. And most parents don't even wait two minutes for the bed to stop. They, if, the, if the baby's not calming after a minute or so, you know that, that the baby really needs you. Um, flathead is something that has occurred since we've recommended back to sleep. Most of the time, it's really insignificant. It's just a, a mild flattening. And it's kind of a small price to pay to be able to save thousands of lives. Um, um, and so um, um, we're now looking at ways that we can adapt new and be able to change the mattress so that it's safer for babies and can reduce um, flathead syndrome. So that's something we're working on right now. Oh, awesome. Because I do find that and like with all these containers that we've created to put baby down and carry baby less, then that has been on the rise and has other effects. So I think uh, there's always that that awareness. Unintended that, consequences. Yeah. yeah. So that parents need to be aware that that is a consequence and then, you know, do more baby wearing or make sure that baby is in different positions to stimulate that head in different right. ways. And, and so, for example, having some interesting things so the baby turns their head to interesting things so that they're on one side of the head sometimes, on the other side of the head other times. Moving the location of the bed can help with changing the baby's gaze. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I will link on my show notes to a podcast that I have on flathead syndrome and, and the benefits of tummy time and all that. So they, you bet. if people can go and learn more that way. Um, so one of the things we haven't, we've gone through talking about the bed, but we actually haven't gone like step to step all the things that it does. Um, mm -hmm. Can you just go through that? Sure, you bet. So if you think about this as being the perfect uh, extension of your womb, this is the place which gives babies the sensations that they love 24-7 inside. So um, what you, we have a special swaddle. We call it the five-second swaddle because it literally takes five seconds to do. It's, super, it's the easiest swaddle ever. Um, and we just launched uh, Sleepy, which is a, a new swaddle blanket that you don't even need snoo to be able to wrap babies in this very easy, very safe blanket. So you swaddle the baby, then you put them inside, and you hook them onto these little safety clips so that the swaddle stays secured so they can't roll over. And then you um, press a button and the bed has this gentle rocking and, and rain on the roof sound that babies love and they will sleep to all night long. But there are microphones around the baby's head as well which detects when the baby cries and then starts responding a little bit faster and making sound that's a little bit louder tinier jiggly motions which is really what you would do if you had a fussy baby in your arms. And so it goes up five different levels of sound and motion um, to calm the baby down. And if after a minute or two the baby isn't calm, then the bed just turns off and, and you get your baby. And, um, and so 
the goal is not only to improve a baby's sleep, and we can usually add an hour or two to a baby's sleep in the first couple of weeks of life, but it's to help babies learn to be better sleepers. So we see that babies in SNU tend to not have problems with growth spurts and teething and colds and sleep regressions, and they become automatically sleep trained. So that by, um, by five, six months, which is usually when babies are out of the bed, they already have these wonderful sleep patterns that become quite solid and carry them through for the rest of the first year. And I did read that the, that the bed does transition out of that motion. How does it do that? Yeah, so there's a weaning feature. So at around five, six months, you can rock the baby for a few minutes and then it stops. The sound will continue and the bed will respond with motion if the baby gets upset. But the all night motion stops. Usually we do that around five or six months so that it's actually we have no problems at all trans, transitioning babies into, uh, into cribs. One other question I had from a listener was like, the, you know, addressing the price of the bed that it's still is and I love the idea that you are thinking of having it be rentals at some point mm-hmm. um, and have it be more accessible. But at this point, if somebody can't address it, um, what are their tools? Like back to the five S's and knowing that around three, four, five months, things might get a little bit more difficult because we know about these sleep regressions that happen around that time. Yep, yep. You can use white noise and you need the right type of white noise, of course, and swaddling and you need good swaddling. The, the snoo bed, um, I'm number one, they, parents can get it on our website for $3 a day and we'll finance it at 0% because we're hoping to get this into the hands of as many parents as possible. And people buy it and then they can sell it for five $600 when they're done with it. So literally, it is like $2 a day. So not that everyone can afford that, but our goal is to really get in, into as many um, hands of parents as possible to keep babies safer and even to keep mothers safer. We have research we're doing now at University of Michigan, UC San Diego and other centers showing that we can reduce, we can treat and even and prevent postpartum depression by improving a baby's sleep and a mother's sleep and also improving a parent's confidence that the baby is safe at night. And, and it, it just by having that extra helper in the house, it relieves a lot of the stress and the concern that new parents have. Yeah, and, and I mean, it's huge that it provides, I can see it as a great tool of providing more sleeps for parents because right now we're asking them or they're asking themselves to do too much. Um, I did want to mention though, and, and we talked this a little bit over the break of how with the sleep studies on bed sharing that mm-hmm. I do want to give people more resources because I, I am a big believer that with this podcast, we inform parents' intuitions, but ultimately it's their choice to figure out what works best for them. And a lot of parents do want to bed share that there is a way to do that safely and that the what I find is that the studies lump together people sleeping, you know, on a sofa or on a recliner or on a bed or that there were bed sharing but it was a dog next to the baby not the exclusive breastfeeding mom or that somebody so I think a lot has been lumped in and people get really scared of even trying to create a safe environment to bed share and then that's when we see them exhausted and doing something that then becomes more dangerous than if they'd inform themselves about the 
ways to like do it if if they happen to be in that situation of doing it safely. Somebody um, had a great great analogy for this in a in a group that I'm in, and and she was saying this is like not telling pe- not telling people how that there is a way to safely bed share is like not wanting to talk about sex ed because people are going to have sex and then they end up having sex and they're like not unprotected right (laughs) and so people end up sharing the bed or sharing a sleep surface that's unsafe i i would i would challenge that concept a little bit and i would encourage the word safer not safely Mm -hmm. because there's no question that there are a number of the risks when you bed share that you can avoid. So blankets, pillows, um, um, children in the bed, dogs in the bed, uh, having the baby between adults, uh, being drunk, being a cigarette smoker, all of those things increase the risk. Not breastfeeding increases the risk. So there are many things you can do to make bed sharing safer. Mm -hmm. However, you would never bed share if you were drunk. And when you're sleep deprived, and almost every new parent is sleep deprived, you are the equivalent of drunk. A study was done in, in, in New Zealand where they videotaped mothers who were bed sharing. These are healthy, regular moms bed sharing. And they saw over uh, about an hour of the sleep period, the blanket was pulled over the baby's face. It didn't start out there. But when the mother is asleep and she moves, she's not aware necessarily of what she's doing. And then the baby can roll over and be on the um, and um, most of the night the baby was on the side, which is a more unstable and unsafe position. And so to encourage breastfeeding, I would advocate have the baby right next to your bed, but not in the bed with you. Because why take the chance if your baby dies and, and it happens, even with the best parents, you accidentally rolled over and your shoulder went on your baby's face and you killed your baby. You, you will, not only did you just leave your baby, your life is now ruined. You will never recover from that guilt feeling. So why? Why take that chance? I, I, that, that's, the, that's the thing I would challenge people on. Having the baby right next to the bed is perfectly encouraging of breastfeeding and attachment and having a close relationship. And once a baby's over nine months or 12 months, absolutely have the child in bed with you as much as you want. Then I'm not worried about it. And it's a great relationship. But during those first six to nine months, I don't understand why one would want to take that risk. Mm, and absolutely, the first recommendation is to have them in bed, not in bed, next to your bed, in the room for the first six months. I just mm-hmm. really, my heart breaks for the parents who then un, unwilling, un, unknowingly put themselves in a higher risk, at higher risk, because they feel guilty, but they ended up taking the baby into bed with them because they were exhausted. So I do like that Snoo comes together to bring a, an option for, you know, that middle ground. Um, but I'm also looking out for parents who don't have the Snoo and who, you know, or choose mm-hmm. not to because, yeah, they need to know, hear all the sides of the study um, of the then recommendations. Then it's better for them to have some kind of co-sleeper, yeah. use white noise, use the swaddling, use all the tools they have because not everyone's going to get a snoo. There's no question about it. Um, but still, people – I was at a conference in Florida where the mo- – normally a keynote address at these medical conferences is some professor from Yale or Harvard or something. But at this – Um, a medical conference, the keynote address was by a a mom from Ohio. And she came to tell her story. She said, look, when I had my first baby, my doctor, my pediatrician, strongly encouraged me to bed share. 
And I did that, and it was the most beautiful experience I ever had. I loved it. So when I had my second baby, I asked my doctor again, and she said again, yes, you should bed share. And she said again, it was the most beautiful, wonderful experience. I loved breastfeeding my baby. It was fantastic until my baby was three months old when I woke up and my shoulder was over my baby's face, and my baby was dead. And so I strongly encourage attachment. I strongly encourage breastfeeding. I strongly encourage skin-to-skin carrying your baby. But put your baby in some place where the baby can be safe, and that's not sofa sharing, and it isn't bed sharing either. It should be with the baby right next to the bed in a co-sleeper or some place where you can't roll over your baby accidentally. That is really going to be the safest for babies. And these are, these are rare tragedies, but, but they're absolutely transformative. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I know that by having the baby in the room with, you know, at the same token, having babies that are in their own room, uh, not next to the parents. And, you know, there have been really cases where a situation happens and the parents don't hear the baby. Um, Oh, yeah, we definitely want the baby in the room with the parent for the first six months. That's absolutely right. Yeah, very good. Um, I did see right before I I stopped by your website um, just before we recorded, and I know I don't know how long this offer is going to be there for, but you had um, people can get the video for the happiest baby um, is available for free right now for download if they subscribed. Is that exactly. is that going to last long? And um, it you know? probably will be up for months. Yeah, because our goal again. My goal as a pediatrician is try to help as many families as possible and try to educate as many families as possible. And so, um, and what's great about this, the video I have to say is that dads do it particularly well. And so guys are good swaddlers and trishers and things like that. And I find that for a lot of men, it gives them things that, okay, I know I can do these five steps and it makes them real, you know, real, uh, participants in on the team and so the moms become the breastfeeding experts and the dads become the baby calming experts and so yes we'll have that as a free download for uh, for a while longer so people can go and take a look at that and yes i love how you give confidence to dads and to partners and and Thanks. to balance things out it is i have come across many many partners that are like i am the swaddler i am the <laughs> fabulous swaddler yeah. well i hope we have another chance to have a conversation about happiest toddler on the block because that does for kids eight months, seven, eight months of age, up to five years, what the baby stuff does for babies. It's counterintuitive. It seems a little weird. But in a day, you can build emotional resilience. You can build patience. And, and you can reduce uh, outburst behaviors by, by 50 to 75%. Oh, yeah. Fantastic. Let's do it. Um, if baby, oh. if, yeah, we'll, we'll schedule it for some time. If um, listeners want to learn more and follow what you do, where can they best do that? Um, happiestbaby.com um, is my website. I tried to get happiestbaby.com, C-A-L-M, but that, <laughs> that wasn't possible. So, um, but it's happiestbaby.com. Beautiful. I'll link it on the show notes. And thank you so much for talking with me today and doing this show. What a pleasure. Thank you, Adriana. Mighty Ones, I love to hear from you. So share with me your thoughts. And if there's a certain topic you'd like to know more about, let me know. Go to birthful.com where you can learn more about me, the show, Patreon member benefits, send me messages and more. I'm also on Facebook or Twitter as at birthful. So come say hi. This episode was produced by me and made possible by you. 
the Birthful Patreon supporters, and by the wonderful humans at RX Bar Kids and Expectful. To best support this podcast, support its sponsors and get discounts while you're at it. Use the code BIRTHFUL at rxbar.com slash birthful to get a 25% off your first order and go to expectful.com slash birthful to start your free two-week trial. The title song for this podcast is Vive Ace by Kevin McLeod, and the sponsorship song is Air Hockey Saloon by Chris Zabriskie. Find them both at freemusicarchive.org. I'm Adriana Lozada. Please join me next week when I'll be talking to another maternity pro to inform your intuition here at the Birthful Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.